information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, don't forget to check out that new IAQ Radio website. We've got the search box in there now. Cliff's uh, blog is uh, much easier to get to. The show descriptions are all on there. It's a a great resource for those that are looking for any information on indoor air quality, disaster restoration, or building science. Before we go to today's show, let's also make sure we thank the IAQ Training Institute. Check out their website for the most current dates for the training you trust. And uh, no, no trivia question today. We've got so much good stuff going on, we're going to jump right into it. So uh, I think, Cliff, uh, did you want me to start this out? Well, I guess in a second. Uh, I guess our host, our Biolan Management Company, it's a consultancy that works to improve small family businesses through focus, execution, and leadership. And we're at their executive summit, and it's a neat event. The attendees that come select from a menu of core courses and electives in four different disciplines, and many of them are working towards a diploma, which is uh, issued by Biolan Management in conjunction with Kent State's Small Business Management Group. And uh, go ahead, Joe. All right, it's a great location. We've got the uh, the man himself, Chuck Biolan, with us. Uh, congratulations, another great event. Uh, Thank you, Joe. What's the secret to your success here at the... What, we've got 160 people or so? Yeah, between 140 160 folks. Yeah, right. we're real thrilled. It's, it's a nice... Uh, How do you do it, Chuck? What's the secret? How do I do it? <laughs> well, first of all, the only one that does it's a whole lot of really good people around me. But, you know, I think if you, if you think about, you know, what is it that has allowed this thing to grow, I think that we were very fortunate to recognize a growing need within the industry as well as within small businesses for leadership and management development. You can know the technical stuff, but you've got to grow a business. Absolutely. You've got to grow yourself, too, which is one of the things that uh, I've enjoyed the most about. We've been here three years in a row now. uh, This year I I was attending a a session that was pretty much about that, how to take those three circles, the work circle, the self circle, and the family and friends circle, and and grow the, the ones that you're not spending enough time on and, and, and try and get them all pretty much equal. And it's, it's great stuff, and I think by growing ourselves as leaders of the company, we'll grow the company. That's exactly what you do. That's exactly how it works. Great stuff. Uh, very good. All right, well, we've also got Tim Hall here today. Tim is the business development advisor for, for the own. He's got a wealth of expertise in operations as well, so he came from the operations side. He was a branch manager and a general manager for several large disaster restoration companies before joining VMA, and uh, he's their go-to guy on the project management and estimating side, and I, I want to turn it over to the Z-man for a question. But first, hello, Tim. Hey, thanks for thanks. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for being here. Uh, 
Well, we're limited on time, Tim, so we want to just get into some meaty stuff. If you could just provide uh, some tips for accurately pricing jobs to be both profitable and competitive, I'm sure that the listeners are going to appreciate it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty good topic, and there's definitely a fine line between profitability and, and competitiveness. Uh, when you look at, at wanting to achieve both of those in the same uh, the same business model, uh, you know, it's just a couple things really that are core to making that happen. I think uh, it first starts with knowing your costs. You know, you got to know your costs like the back of your hand, uh, both your your labor costs, your equipment costs, and and really the overall cost of delivering that service, whether it be administratively or through your sales and marketing, business development team. All of that uh, has an impact on on the profitability of the jobs that you run. Uh, beyond that, when we're talking about restoration work, you know it all starts with defining a really good scope of work that you're going to do, because that's the basis for everything, uh, not just from a, a service delivery standpoint, but a, but a pricing standpoint as well. You can, you know, you can take a look at, at one estimate that's written and uh, by one uh, company and another estimate that's written by another company, and invariably, if there's a difference in the price, significant difference in the price, there's there's definitely a difference in the scope of work. So, so that's another area. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, it comes back to just basic sound business practices. Um, you know, know how to negotiate, know how to sell yourself as a business, and, and if you're able to do those things in concert together, you're going to end up having a, a nice profitable product and service you're putting on the marketplace, and you're going to be competitive at the same time. I guess they have to use some tools as well. It's not just what you can see, but you know, particularly on the water side, you know, I, I guess they have to use meters to evaluate it infrared cameras and you know you gotta get dirty, you gotta have a set of coveralls. You do uh you know in, in the truck for sure. I don't think it's a code and tie thing uh estimating. Uh no, in the, the estimating class that I teach we do a, a two day program twice a year and uh it's one of the things that I impress upon everybody that goes through is get your hands dirty. You know, don't, you're gonna walk in there and, and think that you're just gonna walk around and not pull out the tape measure and, and use it or or start to cut some walls open and see what's going on, you're, you're probably not doing enough due diligence. Yeah, you mentioned knowing your costs, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, I'm going to get one follow-up in here before I go to, we know we've got a lot, but um, what cost do you find most people aren't as aware of as they should be? That's a great question. I, I think people uh, are aware of their labor costs, but they're not aware of the true cost of that labor uh, when it's not working on the job site. So when you, it's easy to track a, a, an employee's time when they're on the job site and they're doing the functions that are laid out in that scope of work that you developed, but all of the rest of the time that that employee spends either driving to the job site, preparing for the job in the morning, or cleaning up for the job, or running to Home Depot and Lowe's every other Day <laughs> to get something yeah. that they forgot. That's that's really where you start to lose a lot of profitabilities and the inefficiencies of the, of, of the labor, the direct labor. That's, a, that's in any company, I guess. It's not just restoration okay. companies. You know, we all have that. And uh, those are that's a great point. All right, let's let's go to another one. Um, as far as uh, how do you identify and capitalize on opportunities for increasing that profit margin? So in, in all your trade categories. Well, there's there's definitely two ways to increase profit. That's one, increase the sale amount, or two, reduce the cost. Um, in, in looking at both of them um, non-discriminately, um, the, the first thing I guess that, that you really have to realize or understand is that you, you're not going to make the same margin on every trade. So if you're able to identify which trades you make higher margins on in the field, then you can obviously make sure that you're, you're selling or, or soliciting more of the high margin work that you want. Um, beyond that, once you have the job secured, really managing the change on that job. You know, quite frequently you'll, you'll have a customer, especially in the restoration field, who may want to attempt to save some money uh, on a deductible or do whatever and, and trade out some services. And uh, understanding which services you're trading out and how much margin you were supposed to make on that, that uh, service you're trading out, that's, that's a pretty important thing to, to realize for and then beyond that, the, the, uh, the basic principles of cost reduction. You know, lean the company out. Uh, if you can uh, reduce the overall cost that it takes you to deliver that service, then you're going to increase margins just by default. Uh, with, with respect to cost, I get 
I work a lot with disaster restoration guys. It seems like some of them, at least, are shying away from the reconstruction side of things. Is that something you see, or is that just me? Is that maybe the less you don't have the margins you would like on that side? No, there's definitely not the margins, um, but the uh, cost, administrative cost to deliver that service is a lot less, too. So um, home builders, remodeling companies, those that do a lot of uh, construction-related activities, they don't have the overhead costs that are necessary to run a full-part mitigation company. So as far as trends in the industry and moving one way or the other with a business model, uh, you know, we've seen the pendulum swing one way uh, to where uh, insurance companies uh, believed in that conflict of interest that existed, and that really drove the marketplace to segregate their services. I'm a mitigation-only company. I'm uh, not competing with those. I'm not, I'm not tearing things open just so I can rebuild them. Uh, that's that's good. philosophy. Um, but, but I think... Uh, the customer, the ultimate customer, the insurers that we're working for, they're, they're kind of pushing the thing back the other direction because uh, they've seen it where they have to deal now with a mitigation contractor and a repair contractor on an insurance claim, and they've spoken to the, to the carriers and said, look, we would rather deal with one single point of contact. So the pendulum kind of shifted back the other way where now companies are offering that full service again. Interesting. Cliff? Yeah, I, I think there's been also uh, a, a switch, a big focus on water, too, really the profitability of water restoration and having pieces of equipment working for us, you know, rather than employees. So I, I think that, you know, the, the major emphasis has really been there, I think. And I think we're forgetting, I think fire restoration in many ways is becoming a lost art. It is, it is. There, there are a couple companies that are taking advantage of that. Um, I know we have a couple clients that are, are focusing mainly on the reconstruction uh, side of things, and, and a couple of them are only offering reconstruction. Uh, so they have developed, there's going to be a niche that opens up there, and uh, they're taking advantage of it. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. And thank it looks you. like uh, Cordell Norton has joined us. Welcome. Cordell is a speaker, author, consultant, business growth expert, and I guess his nickname is the Revenue Mechanic. He helps organizations become more charismatic and, and grow their sales. Joe, uh, how about the first question? Yeah, Cordell, great to meet you. And, uh, what, I heard you're a branding guy. What, what is a brand? Well, that's a great question. I, 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 the, we're doing a whole day on it. So if you're on this, you need to get your buttons here to the, this conference and get a full dose of it. That, to answer your question, what is a brand? A brand is a, is, is a series of, I call them the three E's. It's the expectations of the customers, the experiences they have as they find those expectations that are orchestrated in a series of events. So, uh, yeah, it's a whether that's Disney or Apple Computer or Harley Davidson or your local restoration specialist, they're looking for certain expectations and uh, they want those experiences and those events to be smooth and to their to their benefit down the road. So the third E was events, expectations, experiences, events. Okay, great. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Well, how can you sell and market if you don't have a budget and you want to win uh, against the big guy? And maybe you could even give us an example. That is a great, great question. That is a great, great question. Uh, we're in a day and age where the small entrepreneur is feeling the pressure of the marketplace and people who want to get their message out to capture the customer. And the irony of that is the small entrepreneur often overthinks their capability because the fact of the matter is the bigger the corporation is, the more their customer service suffers. And the small company can do things that the big company can't do. Um, the small company can be closer to the customer. They can adapt and be closer to the customer. And so... Um, how do you do that? Because creativity and innovation, which is creativity put in place, is found by the small company. They can do things the big company cannot do. And uh, an example of that, um, we're in this workshop here today, and one of the participants, I said to him, what do you do to stand out in the marketplace? And he said, well, we do quite a few things. 
um, they were working with uh, uh, several fire departments. They were doing things that would get them into fire departments, like take them pizza. Um, I read recently that the federal government, that the U.S. Army, realized that a pizza box is a great way to get their message across. And so the Army made tens of thousands of pizza boxes and gave them to the local pizza partners because now they would send their recruiting message in to the table, which if you get pizza, guess what the age of the people are that are sitting at the table eating pizza? Their target market, which is would-be Army people. So this person this morning said, hey, I want to get in front of firefighters because they can't recommend me, but when the wife is standing in the kitchen and she's crying because her kitchen is charboiled now, she's she's wanting somebody to help console her. It's going to be all right. And so one of the participants said, I was a firefighter. He said, what I find is that um, I can't recommend somebody, but when she's standing there crying, I can say to her, hey, let me tell you, let me give you the name of somebody you ought to talk to. He said, in this case, it was me and one other guy in town. There's only two of us. And he says, the other guy has horrible service. So he said, as a firefighter, I knew that, and now I'm working for that company because we get service. Well, this guy says, today in class, he says, so what I did is I went and bought a bunch of pizza boxes, gave them to the pizza partner, and then delivered the pizzas to the firefighters who now have my advertising on the pizza boxes. Brilliant. Yeah, pretty good idea. Who can come up with that? The big corporation. They're probably on here. Can't think of it. Well, they're probably worried about liability. Some of the pizza. Are going to get sued or whatever. The same guy said, uh, he said, I came up with this idea. He says, this wonderful idea. He says, uh, we bought ambulances, and those became our trucks, and we wrapped the ambulances, but we left all the lights. So he says, when we pull up, they see the lights, and then our logo, and then they just associate. Oh, these guys! So they're here to help. They're here to help. <laughs> guys are equivalent to the people who are putting out the fire or dealing with that. Yeah, I can give you a personal testimony that we did that in our business in 1992. We had an ambulance, and we responded to Hurricane Andrew, and we did not pay a toll all the way. Florida, and they would just wave them through because they thought they were emergency responders, and you know, had this big Restore X logo on the truck, and it was it was amazing. Never paid a toll. Awesome, awesome story. They would let you talk about saving snacks. Yeah. That's huh? <laughs> absolutely. All right, well, no, I've got a question. I think it's me. Yeah. What? Sometimes I feel like IAQ Radio is one of the best kept secrets in the uh, indoor air quality and disaster restoration world. Uh, What's the cure? If you think your company is a well-kept secret. Um, This comes back to this this issue again of how are you different? When when all things are equal, when they've got a truck and you've got a truck and the next guy's a truck, and you've all got trucks, and they've got a guy that's trained and you guys have got a guy that's trained and the other guy's got it, they're all trained. And they all have vacuums, and they all have hammers and saws. What makes you different? Because in that world, the only thing that differentiates you is price. That's the only thing that differentiates yourself. And so in a price-sensitive world, you have to become very sensitive about standing out, about being different. Because if you're best-kept secret, it's because you're like everybody else. And to get past the best-kept secret, you do have to stand out. And there's a lot of ways to do that. We don't have enough time to talk about it. But uh, an example is one, two, yeah. one, one would be a concept called plus one, plus one. See, if everybody pulls up and they all come and give you a bid on your kitchen fire or your flood, they all give you a bid, they all give you a business card, they all say, we'll call you back, then they all they all look the same. And when they all look the same, then how are you going to stand out? So a plus one says, 
I'm going to pull up and I'm going to look like everybody else and then I'm going to do one thing above and beyond what everybody else does. So, for example, um, I like this example, Five Guys Hamburgers. When you go to Five Guys Hamburgers, they feed you before they feed you. You order the hamburger, but while you're waiting, you get peanuts, and you eat peanuts before you get the hamburger. And then when you get the hamburger, they plus one the hamburger. So they put the hamburger in, they put your french fries in, and then they pour a whole other scoop of french fries on top. You didn't ask for the other french fries. Could you get extra french fries out of McDonald's? You would have to nuclear bomb your headquarters. And so this plus one-ing is saying, how can I give the customer what they expect, and then go one step above, because it may or may not cost anything. I, mean, I think peanuts, compared to the price of the Five Guys hamburgers, is a giveaway. Right. There was one, in, you know, I was fortunate to be in your class uh, this morning. There was one, one statistic that you gave about the, uh, the, the video, uh, you know, the, the do-it-yourself, um, and I just love that you could tell the audience about that. Yeah, um, the statistic is that if you advertise, only 14% of your of your potential customers are going to believe the advertising. It has no credibility. It's you. I mean, it's you saying how great you are. Says who? But if you go and ask for testimonials, then the the viability of that message, that marketing message, goes from 14 to 94%. And so an example is uh, videotape. You've just finished working on your your kitchen. You've got their kitchen back. The smoke stuff is all buried behind special paint. You've got this dried. Everything is back in, in great shape. Uh, and then as you're walking away, you say to the customer, was, was it great? And she says, oh, you guys are fat. Wait. You pull out your phone, turn on the video camera on your phone, and you get the customer to say why they wanted to do business with you, what you did so great. Now you've got the customer complimenting you and your business on why you're great. You download that to YouTube, and then when customers say, have you done this work for anybody else? Oh, yeah. In fact, go to this YouTube video, this YouTube video, this YouTube video, and all of them are people telling about why we're so awesome. Great stuff. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. Uh, hopefully, I'll catch some of your afternoon session here. Be there. All right. Just joining us now is Dr. Holly Bogner. Uh, we have met before. You How were on you? two years back, right? Yeah. Good to have you back. Uh, Dr. Bogner is a trainer, facilitator, business coach, and a former professor with a background in business development, team building, Leadership and Strategic Planning. I'm going to turn it over to the Z-Man for today's question. Thanks, Joe. Holly, thanks again for coming. Uh, simple question for you. What is a personality inventory? It's a series of questions that gives us an opportunity to look at different preferences that people have in how they interact with others, how they take information in, how they make decisions. So it helps us understand what we're good at and what's easy for us, but it's not, the purpose of that is not to say, I'm unable to do something else. So there are scales of preference in this, and what it does is it lets us know what's easy for us to do so we can capitalize on our strengths and play to those and utilize them. So if, if somebody's not here, where would you find this? Can you Google personality? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of different kinds. Today we're using the Myers-Briggs indicator, and it's actually based on the work of Carl Jung. So there's a website called humanmetrics.com that has some Carl Jung work on it and actually has a shortened version of the assessment we're using today online for people that are interested in learning more about their own personal styles. All right. So let's talk a little bit about you know, why it's important for a business to utilize these the personality inventories. It, you know, it's, it's a good question. It's an interesting thing because we all have a tendency to use what's easy for us and to capitalize on those strengths. But what can happen is an overused strength can become a double weakness, and we can get blindsided by ourselves. Let's say, for example, someone has a very strong intuitive side, and they like to see connections, they like ideas, they love new ideas. If they don't have people on their team that help them operationalize those ideas, they never get off the ground. So what you do is you either learn to leverage that opposite side of yourself or you surround yourself and build a team like what Chuck has at Violin that has a variety of people like that, so 
so they can work together and what one does well and the other one can do well in an opposite way. So you can have an idea person, but you can also have someone help make the decisions about that. Or you can have someone who's very logical in their thinking, in their decision making, but you can have someone on the team also that looks at the impact on your people. So it's a, it's a way of balancing that out so you don't end up being too one-sided in your thinking. Well, if I wanted to hire, I think a lot of restoration companies have challenges with salespeople and getting someone to sell. Could you give an example of how this would help us select or deselect someone? It's, that's a hard thing to utilize, Cliff, because what happens is you don't want to pigeonhole people and think that they're unable to do something just because it's not their natural way. For example, we would say that someone who's more extroverted might be a natural salesperson, but I'll tell you, I've met many people who are more introverted that are really good salespeople and knock the numbers off the, off the charts. So I don't know that you'd use this for hiring decisions, but if you're looking to balance your team, you use interview questions to find out what people's style is so that you can have a group of people that's more varied on your team. Uh, I guess one last question. What effect does age have? Like, we're baby boomers and we have Gen X and millennials and stuff like that. Does, does that factor into... You know, it does not factor into our styles, but what is interesting is we all have a hardwired style that seems to be our preferred way of doing things. And the philosophy and research behind it has shown that as we age, because these are scales, two-sided scales, so extrovert, introvert, for example, or someone who's more thinking in their decision-making versus feeling in their decision-making. As we age, the side of us that's not as well-developed cries for development. So we become much more balanced. So those of us that are older or in the baby boomer generation, it's much easier for us to use both sides where someone who's younger, no, they won't. We really are superior to... We are. <laughs> yes, we are. Let's just say that we're able to see both sides, which is why as we get older, our world has a much more gray look about it. You know, it's not as black and white as when you're in your 20s or in your teens. Everything's very black and white then, but the older you get, the more you can see how different things impact and your world becomes a lot more gray. And it's because you see all those variances. Hey, you're really into this. How did you get into this? Oh, gosh. I've been teaching it for years. And I certified in, in, I think, the year 2000. But I used it even when I was teaching before. I think it helps us understand ourselves. And when we're looking to become better human beings, better workers, better business owners, better team leaders or supervisors, we need to understand ourselves very clearly first before we start. You know, it's easy to look out and say, boy, I can help you with this or I can help you with that, but not when we have our own blindnesses. So I think the more we understand ourselves, the more we can be of benefit to other people. So it's not from an ego-stroking place. It's more just a deeper understanding of how we see the world. Let me follow up on you were talking about doing that personal inventory, and we said we could go online and get mm -hmm. some. But it seems to me like I would uh, bias my answers. Would it be better to have someone else involved in the process or just... Um, I think you have to answer them for yourself, but you certainly could take someone close to you and show them your out, you know, the output of your data and see if they see that as being the truth. Because sometimes we are blind to ourselves. But I'll tell you, if you think you're going to answer the questions differently for any purpose other than just to fool yourself, it's silly because there's no right or wrong or good or bad. Okay. So I was, yeah, I did it last year. I took a class. It was excellent. I, and I found the um, results from doing the survey to be very, very accurate in terms of really who I was and how I think and how I operate and what my preferences are mm -hmm. and who you thought you were. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's my wife. Well, that's Judy. But I mean, I, I, I've done this sort of thing before, and I, I had a group of people where there were actually ten people in the room, and no one was allowed to put their name on it, and everyone took the uh, took the inventory, mm -hmm. and they had to pick an animal. Uh, you know, like someone was giraffe, and you know, you just pick some animal, put it on there, and the amazing thing is. Everybody knew who everybody else was based based on us. I mean, it was amazing. It's scary accurate. Yeah. I mean, it's just profound.
they, they, they've gleaned this thing down. It's been used around the globe for years and years and years. It's one of the number one questionnaires that we use in business. There, people use DISC, and that's very good, too. Right. But this one really tells us how we think, not just what our strengths are and our behaviors, but more what our preferences are. And when you can really leverage that, if you have someone that's really logical and very good at data, you put them with a spreadsheet, and they will knock your socks off. So it's allowing people to really shine and do what they're good at and leveraging all on those strengths. When you find areas of weakness, how do you help people? Do you coach them to get better mm -hmm. in those areas? So sure. And some people, I know Chuck does it, I do it, and a lot of others do. We're, we're big self-development people. We like reading. We like learning. So if there's an area where, for example, when I went into my doctoral program, I went from a humanities program into social science. For me, that was like throwing a fish into a, a dry sand bucket. It was such a shock to the way I thought. So I had to learn how to do that. I had to exercise parts of my brain and my mind that didn't think that way. And it hurt. I mean, it's, it's like working on a muscle that you haven't used before. But once you strengthen that, the balance is so profound. And I think anyone who's willing to learn can learn it. I think it's, it's an unfortunate thing when someone says, this is who I am and that's all it's going to be. And so I'm logical, I don't have a lot of warmth and a lot of heart, so that you're just going to have to take me out as I am. There's some truth to that, but it's an unfortunate thing because we can't use our personal styles as an excuse. Do you run into that? I mean, do you run into Not your... Not so much as I used to years ago. I think the corporate world has changed a little bit, and I think that the demands of people that are employees, they expect more breadth and they expect a little bit more caring than they got in years past. So I don't hear it like I used to, but 20 years ago, I hear, well, that's just who I am. You just have to get over it. In today's world, that doesn't fly like it used huh. to. Interesting. Very yeah. good. Well, I think it's time for halftime. So okay. let's go to halftime. I want to thank uh, Ollie. Thank, thank you. 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 John, let's go to halftime. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. All right, we're back for the second half for a show at the Viola Executive Summit in beautiful Canton, Ohio, and Jack Shanks has just walked in. Jack is the owner of Management Solutions. He's got a broad-based background of management experience, and he's also an experienced negotiator and coalition builder who has created and taught seminars for over 20 years. Welcome, Jack, to IAQ Radio. Hey, Jack, I got a personal question for you. What was the biggest thing you ever negotiated, or most important thing? Most important thing uh, would be um, worldwide military command and control project for General Electric back in the late 60s. Uh, that was, it was building, uh, it was putting computers, installing them at all the military bases across the United States and interlinking them for logistics support and supplies. So what were the issues that you had to negotiate on? Well, getting hardware in on time, uh, training was a big one, documentation, and of course the software development part of it. Oh, 
I thought you were going to say getting married. But uh, <laughs> no, it's what happens after that. <laughs> Learn how to negotiate. It's just starting. Uh, well, I guess in cleaning and restoration, uh, what other negotiating criteria are there other than the scope and, and price of the project? If you take a look at the restoration side, there are four entities, and each one is a different negotiation. Um, the thing I run into in all these seminars and all the classes I give uh, is payment. Payment is the number one consideration where a lot of times payment goes from the insurance company to the client and then somehow gets lost, spent, it's gone. And so that's something that the key to this whole thing is negotiating with the insurance company and the client the funds that are required to get the job done and to make sure that those funds come back to the appropriate people when it's done. So that's one thing we work on in the seminar. If you look at a supplier, of course, you're looking at the material, making sure that material is available. The big thing is a delivery, delivery times and dates, as well as delivery methods. Do they, when they bring the chucker, they just dump it off in the driveway or do they store it? What do they do with it? And then um, the quality and the quantity. The quality of the material must stay within some standards and the quality, and the big thing for the supplier is the, the protection in the contracts. To make sure if they do not deliver quality material within a time frame, something's going to happen. And it's legal and approved by both parties. And usually that's you know, withholding payment. Sounds like there's some tariffs. There's a lot more to it. Oh, yeah. Price. Right. Mean, oh, yeah. I, I was just thinking, you weren't here earlier, but we had, uh, I think, our first guest of 10 who was talking about, you know, how um, some of the biggest cost wasters or, or, or money wasters are having guys going to pick things up, downtime, uh, even the way it's delivered. I think that's important oh, because yeah. if it's not delivered properly, somebody's got to pick it up, sort it out, put it in place. Uh, right. So that's very interesting. It's uh, like uh, I, I know one job where the company, the lumber company, delivered the lumber, two-by-fours and drywall, and stuck it in the back part, a muddy part, during a rainstorm. And then they couldn't even use the timber and the drywall. It was ruined. Hmm. So it delayed the plot just because nobody thought about delivery yeah. and what happens under certain conditions. Great. With the contractor, you're always worrying about resources. <clears throat> Are they, do, do they have the resources necessary to not only do our job, but to do the jobs that the others are assigned to and the skill level of those? <clears throat> the schedule that they have to meet, and protection in the contract, especially for damaging the property that they're working on. <clears throat> and are they liable for that property, for that damage to the property? So that, that's something that's negotiated there. Again, it comes back to protection in the statement of work. Finally, the client access to the property, the payment, which I just talked about, making sure we get the proper payment, and the schedule, which with a homeowner who is distressed and emotional right now, it's hard to do some of this stuff, especially the schedule. They want it fixed right away. They don't want people in their house, but, but it, it's got to happen. They're speaking of that, a lot of times when someone's standing at six inches of water, they'll pretty much find anything. Yeah. And then I think all of a sudden, you know, I, I think sometimes they end with, with buyer's remorse as well, that they see this contract going to a contractor who gave up Super Bowl Sunday and their employees you know, worked in the cold or gave up the holiday or were on vacation, had to come back in order to do the job, and all of a sudden all they see is this check going, and, and all of a sudden this buyer's remorse, I think, creeps in from... I think the longer it is between the start of the project and, and, and when the payment's made, the more things they... more problems that occur. Well, it's very stressful for a homeowner. Uh, you have yeah. other people in your home, you have damaged your home, you're worried about... Even if it's fixed, is something going to go wrong later on? Right. And it's a, a difficult negotiation for these companies with an emotional emotional buyer at that time, and you you've got to feel for the homeowner. What's What's the most common mistake people make when they're negotiating? I mean, is it is there one? Is there? I I think not asking the right questions. Going in going into a project with too many unknowns, when on the negotiation they should have taken their time to figure out what they don't know determine the important parts of that, and then going out and getting the answers before we start. 
There's an old saying that was it's called the 40 rule 40 4070 in information gathering. It was made popular by Colin Powell. It says that we don't you shouldn't take any action on anything until you have 40% of the information you need to do a proper job. But don't waste your time trying to get more than 70. I've seen people go into negotiation with like 5% thinking I'll get it while I'm in the negotiation. Or after the negotiation's done, they said, I wish I'd known that. Well, it's too late now. It's just a lack of information. Well, how, how would you qualify that you have the 40%? Or? There's a way. In the seminar, I teach them how to do it. It's using a set of criteria and, and beginning to ask questions like, who handles this? And if you don't know the answer, you write it over here. Uh, who's responsible for the budget? Who's responsible for the payment? If you don't know the answer, you write it over here. And then as you get that list of unknowns, you begin to prioritize them and attack them. The worst thing is, is just not having the right amount of information. It's just like I tell in the class. You go into Best Buy to buy something. And the salesperson says, what do you want? I don't know. Uh, what make and model do you want? I don't know. And what are they going to sell you? They're going to sell you the highest priced item with all the bells and whistles, even though you don't need them, because they don't know. And they push the highest priced product. Sure. The more you know, the better negotiator you are. Yeah, I think a car is even a better example oh, yeah. for that. Yeah, they're going to come yeah. out of there with something that they definitely don't. Right. Definitely don't need. I, I hear a lot of complaints from restoration contractors about adjusters. Uh, <laughs> how do we handle it when the adjuster says, I just had this happen to me, so I love this question. Uh, adjuster says, I only have X for this service. <laughs> how, do we, how do we deal with that, Jack? The first step on that would be first understand the policy. <clears throat> and a lot of homeowners don't understand their own policies. They haven't read it the entire thing. They just know they're covered for something. Understand the policies, and the restoration companies should see the policy and look at it. And then what they should do is to make sure the adjuster truly understands the scope of the project. A lot of times they're sitting at a desk 300 miles away, and you try to say this whole section of wall is down, there's mold over here, and they say, well, I don't care, because they can't see it. Um, I think we've got to get the adjusters to under truly understand what the scope of the project is. Once that happens, then we've got to look for things that are different to be able to negotiate with, like safety concerns. If we don't do this, here's what could happen in a year from now, and it would put this family in danger or this office in danger. And it's to also look at building codes. And uh, I've seen sometimes, not a lot, but I've seen where insurance companies will sometimes bypass uh, building codes, say, well, we can't cover that, and we are saying that this requires it by the building code. So I think looking at safety issues and building code issues is a way to get that adjuster to think and to revisit the scope and see how we can work together. That's the whole thing, is working together as a team to get this property fixed. Very good. Cliff, any more for Jack? All right, Jack, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Great to Glad meet to you. I look forward to jumping in your class next year. Okay, good enough. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right, next up is Scott Tackett. Yeah, Scott Tackett is a facilitator, business trainer, and adjunct professor at Kent State University. Uh, he joined Violand after 32 years in manufacturing, human resources, and organizational leadership. What did you do in manufacturing? Um, made tires. Okay, cool. Tire manufacturer. For a rubber company? Yes. Yeah. Which one? It was it was a small company specialty tire manufacturer, Denman Tire. Okay, cool. Oh, very cool. Because cool. uh, I, I don't know, of all the things I, I've done in my life, I kind of like the manufacturing side. Uh, the best place I kind of find that. I think that's where I grew up. For I sure. I find that fun. So, well, you, you talk uh, about relating to people within your courses. What's the difference between relating to an 18-year-old new hire and, and the veteran that's kind of stuck in their ways? Yeah, Joe, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and that's a complexity that I didn't face when I first went into to management 25 years ago. Because we have four generations in the workplace. So people are working longer. And so you've got the 18-year-old, and then you've got the, you know, the, the guy or gal that's been around for through 10 or 15 years, and they, they know the way it is, and they're going, hey, you know, who's this young person coming in? You got the you got the young person coming in and going, hey, who's this old guy over here? You know, so uh, it's 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 a matter of what I think is motivational leadership required by the the managers and the owners of of, of companies, and what we've got to do 
our job is to be is to figure out how do we deal with both of those individuals. They're different. Um, there's challenges, but there's also opportunities. You know, people refer to the 18-year-old as the entitlement mentality. Well, maybe we created that. You know, we created that by, you know, giving them the visual rewards in school because they sat in their seat and, you know, they played on a, on a softball team and lost 30 games, but we give them a participation trophy. Yeah, you know, yeah. now they come in the workplace and, and they want that. We have, we have to understand that. The 18-year-old is going to ask us why. Um, that's where they grew up. In my era, if I asked my parents why, I got slapped on the side of the head. We all You know, because I said so. That, that's exactly right. So we have to understand that there's going to be these challenges, but we got the great opportunities. Um, the, the, so each one of those groups, I can't manage either one of those uh, individuals in, in a certain way. I have to find out how do I, how do I motivate this person to perform, how do I motivate this person to perform, and make them understand that, particularly in our industry, um, the teamwork is, is going to be an important component. And that's not, a, that's not a fluffy stage. It's what it is. And we've got to be able to bring those together. And that, that's a function of management and leadership. And I think that's what's so important. What about communication? Uh, have you noticed other communication methods that differ between generations? At, you know, again, another good question. I, I don't think it's so much uh, communications. Um, I think it's more what I look at from the perspective of the, our ability to listen. The way that I approach you, the way that I approach an 18-year-old, yeah, it's going to be a little bit different, but it goes back, back to listening. I've got to be able to listen to the employees where they're coming from. I may not always agree with that, but if I don't, if I don't listen and I think, I think from a motivational perspective, the way that I talk to a traditionalist, you know, somebody that's, that, that's older. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a senior traditionalist. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The way, the way that I speak to it, you know, because we've got four generations, a baby boomer. A baby boomer is somebody that wants to talk and talk and talk. A traditionalist, you basically, you give them the straight scoop. And if they feel that you are manipulating it and you're not, you're not listening to what they have to say, they get frustrated. A Generation Xer, that, that 27 to 42, tell them what time it is. They don't care about how the watch is made. The 18-year-old, you've got to be prepared to be able to explain your whys and how it impacts them. The traditionalist, that older person, when you, when you speak with them, you always need to remember the importance of respect. Because if you disrespect them, they feel that they're being talked down to, they will shut down. Uh, a boomer, you know, if, if they feel that you're going after them, they take it personal. These are, you know, the 60s and 70s where they grew up, and personal issues are big with them. You don't micromanage a Generation Xer. Uh, they'll leave your company. They will leave your company. They want to be left alone. They'll hold themselves accountable. That gets into a whole other area, too. The, the, the Generation Xers, they... they they won't work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. They want the home and life balance because they saw their mom and dads work that long and then lose their jobs, their companies close down, you know, after 30 plus years. They're not, they're not going to do that. It's not that their work ethic is not good, but they want that personal life too, and that's really important to them. Interesting. Interesting. Very yeah, I like that. Yes. Um, Cliff, you're up. Um, Let's talk a little bit about decision-making. Um, how can we make better decisions, and how can we make decisions quicker? Because in the restoration business, we've got to make a lot of decisions. You, you do, and it, and it is a process. And I think that the process is that we tend to uh, shoot from the hip. We tend to continue to rely on the old methods. Um, and I think when you look at decision-making, what, what I look at is just to learn from the mistakes that you've made and, and not make those same mistakes. So in decision-making, as you go through this process, I think it's critical to understand that you look at the options. Uh, it, it's, it's a scientific method, just like we solve an equipment problem. You know, you break it down. What's the real problem? What's the real issue? How can I fix it? What are the options? Execute the solution. And then the follow-up, did it work or did it not work? Um, and I think in today's world, 
because of the complexities of the issues, and I think in restoration with all the problems and the evolution and revolution that we're going through, you've got to have as many heads involved in it as you possibly can. And I'd like to drill it down to the, to, the, to the levels in the organization where the technicians, where the PMs, where the estimators are working. If I'm having problems, yeah, I've got to make a decision, but I want to get their input. I don't want to involve myself in paralysis by analysis. We can't do that. And we'll get left behind when we do that. But I want to get input from the people who are doing the job. I think people are craving, they're craving for the ability to come forth and be part of something. But we don't ask them enough. We don't ask them enough. We think that we're the manager, we're the leader, we've got the title, so therefore we have all the answers. I never did. And I found that if I really depended on my people and I was willing to go and ask them for their input, they're more than willing to participate. So I think decision-making involves the idea of making sure that we get as many people involved in the process as not. At the end of the day, I, I, there, there may come a point where I'm going to have to make a tough decision. I'll never run from, from, from a tough decision. But if I can get more people to help me, to give me the points of view, you need critics, you need dreamers, you need the realists in, 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 in a process. And because change is so critical today, I want that person who's dreaming about the way it should be. I want that critic to say, hey, did you think about that? You know, and, and challenge me. And, and this isn't a plug for Violin or Chuck Violin, but that's the relationship that we have with Chuck. We can challenge him. And I think that's what helped our company grow, and that's what helps us do a better job with, with our client base. I think it's a very good point. I think so many times, you know, the owner making all the decisions, calling all the shots because they think that, you know, it's just their chips that are in the game. But oftentimes, you know, uh, the right you know, a suggestion or an improvement can really come from left field oh. and, uh, you know, really think about it. You know, an 18-year-old kid comes and, you know, what can he know or whatever. <laughs> and it's just they think of things differently. Oh, and absolutely, Cliff. I, I think that the, the three things that every one of these categories of employees are looking for, whether they're the 18-year-old or, you know, the 50-year-old or whatever, the three things people want. People want to feel part of something. They want to feel in on things, and they want appreciation. That's the three things that will keep our issues. It's tough enough to hire people into the restoration industry to get them in there. Once we get them, we've got to keep them, and that's how we keep them, and that transcends all the generations. Those are the things that people want and need, and I think by involving them in decision-making, we're telling them that we care about them. We're telling them that they're value. They can come up with some really crazy things, and we try to say, no, that's not going to work, and we tell them why it's not going to work, but at least we're listening to them. I think that's the key. When you, you, you talk about getting uh, more people involved and, and talking about the, the decision, you know, or giving you information to help you with the decision, do you find one of the generations or the other is better at that or more willing to allow that to happen? that the 18-year-olds the were going to tell me exactly what they think and they're going to be very graphic in what they, what they think. There's going to be no misunderstanding. I think the Generation Xers, the, the next level of group, I think the Generation Xers tend to be a little bit more thoughtful. Okay, so I think they, they want to think things through a little bit more. Um, they're the group that doesn't like to be micromanaged, so they're the group that, but they want to feel that they're making a difference. The baby boomers tend to be the ones that I think shy away most, most from decision-making because they're, they're the group that uh, what we would say touchy-feely, huggy, you know, kind of the, 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 the real idea that uh, we don't want to offend anybody. They tend to be very politically correct because they grew up in an era of the civil rights movement and the 60s and all those things going on. And, and the traditionalists, I don't find that the tra- I think that the traditionalists struggle more with involvement in decision making because they've never been there. They've always been told to do it this way, you know, because they came from the command and control type of mentality. Come in, do your job, and go home, and that's that's what they know. So they're they're the least comfortable of the group in in my experience. What effect, if any, does military you know have or sports? You know, someone that was you know, like real active in sports, what effect does that have? Yeah, boy, I, I tell you, I, I think it has a significant uh, effect, and it, it 
it can be, I've seen um, positives and negatives with that. Um, I love the idea of the coaching. I love the sports mentality. I love the discipline of teamwork coming together. But I also struggle with the idea that sometimes when we draw those sports analogies, you know, the, the feeling is that my beloved Browns get to play practice six days for losing one game. You know? <laughs> uh, in business, we don't get that luxury. We have to be on our game every single day. And that's the, that's the difference where I struggle with the sports analogy. But the discipline, the teamwork, absolutely. The military, it, it can be a struggle because someone coming from that command and control, because that's the way the military has to be. Now we're coming in and I'm asking them to be participative, cooperative, you know, a, a new mentality. Sometimes people from that, that, that structure and then a little less structure scares the heck out of them. And so they're kind of still feeling their way, and they're still trying to understand. But I do like the, the, the commitment that I've seen from the, from the folks that I've been able to attract from the military. And there is a, there is a sense of loyalty and dedication that, that I don't always see in the other, the other you know, people that haven't been in that environment. All right, Scott Tackett, thank you. Uh, great to great to get a couple minutes with you here, and uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. All right, let's go to the roundup, folks. Uh, we're gonna... I, I think before we do, I, I just had one comment. You know, I, I, I think I want to go back to really the the uh, you know, the beginning of the event. You know, and you know, the keynote presentation was made by a little lady uh, by the name of Rebecca Gregory, and some of you may have heard of her, some of you may not. And she was standing with her family near the finish line of the Boston Marathon on April 15, 2013, when two bombs exploded, killing three people and injuring more than 260 others. She suffered catastrophic injuries, uh, resulting in 35 surgeries, and the tough eventual decision that she made to have her leg amputated. You know, it's two years later. She ran the Boston Marathon, running the last 3.2 miles on a prosthetic leg. And through her words and photos, she talked about the journey, uh, you know, starting on that faithful day and uh, you know, really ending at the finish line. I, I really thought that you know, it was a moving and dramatic way to uh, you know, kind of open up the vent. I think what we should do is give, uh, you know, I talked about the beginning, and we, you know, we've kind of talked about you know, what's happening through, I think we should give uh, Chuck the last word, and then what we can do is open it up for Roundup. What do you think? Chuck? Well, well, you just heard a lot of you. You sat back quietly yeah. and listened to the, the troops. Uh, Very odd for me to sit back. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of final comments, or uh, what did we miss that you'd like to add? Yeah, I think the thing that I would add is, uh, if you listen to all the different instructors in here, you could see how the themes weaved in and out of what it is that they're teaching as far as growing the business, you know, involvement and working with each other. And it's just, I, I found that fascinating. You know, all the way from, you know, Jack to Holly to Scott, Cordell, you know, it was with all Tim, it was with all of them. Yeah. So it was just kind of cool. Yeah, it was great. Well, I think you do a remarkable job uh, and, you know, you have a bunch of happy clients and uh, you practice what you preach uh, in the organization.
I don't have anything to say, so uh, I, Cliff, I don't know if you want to put that in the blog and tell the whole world. I am going to put that. You didn't have anything to say. And I remember a couple of blogs you didn't have anything added either. I'm sorry I didn't hear you. I was talking over you. Yeah, I, I said I said if you put that out there for the world, I mean somebody's liable to start a website to kind of try to track that, you know, and find out when the next time would be that I actually was speechless because it's only about three or four times in my life, you know, like when I got the Marty Award, and uh, you know, I don't know, there were a couple others, but that's not very often. So uh, anyway, at, you know, add a boy to to, to the Z Man and Radio Joe and. Uh, and my good friend there, Mr. Violin, for the wonderful job that you really have done to partner with Kent State and um, not only putting on the summit, but uh, the project management course is really just outstanding. And uh, that may be one of the best kept secrets in the industry, Chuck, listening to uh, the branding guy, whoever the other guy was there, you know, uh, we need to get the word out and that. There's a whole bunch more people who should be going to that course. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff that Tim does, I really enjoy, you know, working with him. And Mickey, you know, on these REA projects, and um, I continue to look forward to that. So, uh, you know, uh, really wonderful job, guys. Thank you, please. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I think we're going to wrap it up here, Cliff. What do you think? Cliff, hey, by the way, next week we're going to have Sharon Kramer on. It's been a while, and um, some of you may know, others don't, that she's actually uh, had some. You know, good things happen. Uh, the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine actually, uh, I don't know that they retracted some of the statements that uh, she was fighting, but they did remove them, and they're no longer out. So uh, I think we're going to have Sharon on. She's going to do a little political history of the um, indoor environmental and, and particular dampness and mold and how it's affected people over the years. And um, we're going to ask her what her plans are for the future. So... Uh, Please come back next Friday at noon and join us for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.